Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets the timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. There is a unique difference between the person who is naturally affluent and the person who is unnaturally loaded. The difference stems within the core of their soul, in which one is the embodiment of oneness, peacefulness, and calmness. And as his affluence grows, his calmness grows. For this individual, the naturally affluent person, affluence fits like a tailored maid suit. The core of the person who is unnaturally loaded is an embodiment of chaos. Every form of possession, power, and responsibility is verging on becoming the straw that broke the camel's back. And his wealth makes him look like the individual who is wearing a suit that just doesn't seem to properly fit him. For the naturally affluent person, every experience of growth is a blessing. True and appreciative friends grow in quantity and quality, and his own spiritual growth rises higher and higher. For the unnatural loaded person, every experience of growth is a struggle, poorly masked in a sense of false confidence. Eventually, the latter begins to come apart by the seams. The people around him begin to suffer from him. Most friends begin to leave him. Those who stay are a bundle of nerves, victims of abuse. And the individual himself begins to turn to any of a variety of substances, objects, or activities in a futile attempt to keep it all together. In this lecture, we are going to explore why this core difference between the naturally affluent and the unnaturally loaded exists, and how to become naturally affluent. This lecture will dive into the core difference between Jacob telling Esau, I have everything, and Esau telling Jacob, I have a lot. Which of the two is the humble paradigm? How can Jacob say, I have everything? Is it even humanly possible to have everything? By way of introduction, I want to explain the title of this lecture, which is A Dot of a Difference. Each of the 22 Hebrew letters of the Alephbet have layers and layers of deep mystical meanings. For our exploration, I want to point out three letters that each represent the mystical emanation of Malchut, kingship, which mystically represents the recipient. The letter Resh, which looks like, I would say, a backward um, small r without a point in the top in the top corner. It's just round. The letter Dalid is like the Resh, but it has on the top right corner, it's not round, it actually has an extra dot there, which makes it a corner. And then there's the letter Hey, which looks like the Dalid, but has an, another extra disconnected hanging leg on the front left side. Now, the difference between the Reish and the Dalit is a dot placed on, on the top back of the Reish. And the difference between the Dalit and the Hay is a hanging dot placed on its front bottom. If you go into my notes, open them up and download them, you will see there a picture of all the Hebrew letters that we are mentioning. Do remember, please, that in Hebrew we read from right to left. And thus the right side is the back of the letter and the left side is the front of the letter. Thus, the difference between these three recipients is but a dot of a difference. The difference is the dot that creates of one a naturally affluent individual, and the lack of the dot leaves the other being a non-natural loaded individual. What we must discover here is what precisely this dot of a difference is all about. Actually, 
According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, all of the 22 Hebrew letters of the alphabet are built upon a special dot, which is the letter Yud, which looks like, again, if you look at my notes, you'll see it, it's literally a dot. The letter Yud is the first letter of God's ineffable tetragrammaton, and is the concept of humility, a simple dot. It is this humility of the Yud dot that is the foundation of all the Hebrew letters, through which God articulated Himself and through which God created the world. As the story in Genesis states, And God said, let there be. Thus creation came about through God's speech of words made up of letters. What is paramount to our present exploration is that it is precisely this very dot of humility that creates the difference between the layers of recipients, the Resh, the Dalit, and the Hay. Another introduction that we need to make is also built on the Holy Zohar's mystical teachings upon the Hebrew letters, that the letter Resh is from the other side. Okay? To understand this, we need to understand that there is nothing outside of God, and that everything that exists comes only from God, including evil, known in Kabbalah and Hasidus as the other side. The definition of the other side is that all of holiness comes from face-to-face -face relationship with God. And the emphasis of the word face is from the Hebrew word for face, which is panim, which literally means interior, pnimiut. This means that the relationship of God with this creation, the face-to-face -face relationship, is one of an interior essence relationship, imbued with God's desire and will of its existence. The other side emphasizes that this creation has a back-to-back -back relationship with God, which is an external relationship void of the desire or will of God for the existence of this creation. Allow me to explain, for we really need to understand, if God has no desire or will for this creation to exist, then why does it exist? Let's understand. God created evil only because God wanted freedom of choice to exist which in turn would make everything that we do for God precious, being that we freely choose to do it and we're not mechanically programmed to do what we do for God. Thus the existence of evil is not because of God desiring or willing the existence of evil in itself. Rather, God created evil only so that mankind can then freely choose goodness over evil and that mankind can eradicate evil. Thus, evil's existence was brought about through the Hebrew letters of the back-to-back -back relationship with God, so that from them there can be the existence of evil. Now, the letter Resh is one of those letters that are the conduit through which God creates the other side, and thus it is an unholy letter. More specifically, Resh is the letter from which the recipient of the other side is brought into being. The letters Dalet and Hay are holy letters of the face-to-face -face expression of God, from which the holy recipient is brought into being. One last introduction that is necessary for this lecture is that in all of creation, God created the science of cause and effect, and placed the key to that flow within the hands of mankind. In other words, the verse states, God is your shadow, Hashem Tzilcha which means that God is reacting to our behavior, rather than having us react to God's behavior. The entire Torah and mitzvot concept is based upon this fundamental understanding.
When God states, now let me quote you a couple of verses, and it will be if you will diligently obey my commandments, and God goes on to say, I will give rain. And then God goes on to say, take care lest your heart be lured away. And then God concludes with, and he will close the heavens so that there will be no rain. When God states this, God is not threatening us with reward and punishment in as much as God is revealing to us the science of cause and effect that God planted within the universe. The same applies to our exploration of the dot. When we embrace the yud dot of humility, then God as well embraces the yud dot of humility. Thus the dot of a difference speaks not just of the difference between the reish, dalit, and hay of the recipients, but of the dot or the lack thereof in the giver. Thus our exploration now becomes a three-dimensional exploration of the dot, in which we must understand the dot of the giver, the dot of the receiver, and what the dot of a difference creates within the affluent individual and within the loaded individual. Let us now begin. Let's talk about the giver's dot. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, there is a concept called concealment for the sake of revelation. I want to take a few moments so that we clearly understand this concept. What is the difference between a devastating tsunami and a nourishing rain? The answer is a dot. Rain is water given in small droplets, while a tsunami is water given without being contracted into droplets. Thus, the difference is in the dot. In other words, the small digestible droplet of water. The rainwater's being contracted into droplets is an act of concealment, constraint, versus the floodwaters of a tsunami is an act of a mighty revelation. However, it is precisely the act of concealment and contraction with the rainwaters that makes it a product of revelation, creation, and growth. While on the other hand, it is precisely the mighty revelation of the floodwaters of a tsunami that turns it into a devastating experience of destruction, death, and annihilation. Thus, rainwaters are a perfect example of the concept of concealment, contraction, for the sake of revelation. The same applies concerning the infinite light and creation. Were the ineffable tetragrammaton of God not to start with the letter Yud, which is the dot of concealment and contraction, then the revelation of God's name, the infinite light, would have been an act of devastation rather than a kind act of creation. The first act of creation that God performed was the act of a benevolent concealment. Thus the verse states, and this verse comes from our nighttime services, the Ma'ariv, He, means God, He rolls away light before darkness and darkness before light. The mystical meaning behind this verse is, that God rolls away, He contracts and conceals the infinite light to create darkness, meaning a dot. But the purpose of this is that God rolls away darkness for light, which means that the purpose of the concealment and contraction is in order to create a light digestible and beneficial for the finite creations of the universe. Our sages teach us that the original light that came forth from God saying, let there be light, was so powerful that Adam was able to physically see from one end of the world to the other. God, however, placed the sun within a casing, for its original light was too strong for mankind. However, when God takes out the sun from the casing, the light will cause, and I will quote to you our sages, healing for the righteous and punishment for the wicked. How can that be? Once again, we are brought back to the dot 
that the righteous manifest in their life as recipients of God and that the wicked do not manifest in their lives. And therefore, for the wicked, the original light serves as a devastating tsunami, while to the righteous it serves as nourishment and healing. However, let us return to the dot of a giver, for there is more to be understood of the giver's dot before we can explore the recipient's dot. In truth, the metaphor of the tsunami versus the raindrops isn't totally accurate. In both the tsunami and the raindrop, the water is of the same quality. The difference is only in the quantity of water given at a single time. However, when we speak of the infinite light creating and sustaining the finite creation, this is, the issue is not just of the quantity of light, but of the quality of light as well. The infinite light is not an infinite amount of finite light. Every drop of infinite light is infinite. Thus, even one drop of infinite light is not digestible by the finite creation. This is why Kabbalah and Hasidus introduce a new metaphor, that of a teacher and a student. However, a very clear introduction to this metaphor is necessary. The difference between a teacher and a student as it exists in the teachings and the metaphors of Kabbalah and Hasidus is not one of an amount of knowledge and data that the teacher has which the student doesn't. Rather, in Jewish mysticism, the teacher exists in a total different qualitative paradigm than the student does. I personally like to use the metaphor of the bird's eye view versus the worm's eye view to understand the difference of the teacher's paradigm versus the student's paradigm. The question isn't just of how much the bird sees versus how much the worm sees. Rather, the ultimate difference is of how they each perceive that which they do see. So too, the mystical understanding of a teacher is that he sees divinity as the simple, absolute truth of existence. And from that paradigm, the teacher searches out the existence of creation, while the student sees his existence and the existence of the physical world as a simple absolute truth. And from there, the student seeks out God. Thus, the difference between the teacher's paradigm and the student's paradigm is not just in the quantity of their knowledge, but more importantly, in the quality of their paradigm. Understanding this, we can now fully appreciate the challenge the teacher faces in teaching the student. The teacher doesn't want the student to fit his out-of-the-box teaching into the in-the-box paradigm of the student, or the student will never get out of the box, or, and will just keep on internalizing everything he hears from his teacher into his own worm-eye view. On the other hand, the student is utterly incapable of digesting even one small drop of the teacher's teaching from the teacher's bird's eye view paradigm. Now let us return to the concept of contraction and concealment, and with this the concept of concealment for the sake of revelation. The teacher's evolution, step one. The only thing that the teacher can do is to have his teaching evolve into the student's paradigm without it losing the teacher's paradigm. Wow, that's a daunting task. The only way that the teacher can do this is to search within himself for the student's paradigm. 
Now, obviously, even the student's paradigm as it exists within the teacher is beyond the scope of the student himself. See it as the lowest of the spiritual is still higher from the highest of the physical. However, the lowest of the spiritual is capable of relating to the highest of the physical. Thus the teacher needs to push aside of his own capacity of understanding so that he finds the lowest point of his own thinking which can then relate to the student's paradigm. That is the first step of the contraction in which the infinite light must find within itself the finite paradigm of infinite. In practical terms, the billionaire who wants to teach his son not only the knowledge of money, but also the value of money so that his son develops his own affluence paradigm, must first be able to push aside his own appreciation and capacity of wealth and begin training his son with $100 deals, $1,000 deals, and only from there can he grow his son into an appreciation of million-dollar and billion-dollar deals. The Teacher's Evolution, Step 2. However, this contraction in itself is not enough, for as we pointed out, the lowest of spirituality is still spirituality, which is beyond the paradigm of the physical. Thus, the next step of the teacher's evolution process is that the teacher must now be able to see his student for where his student is and deliver the package in the teaching in the gift wrapping of the student's environment. In other words, we can now understand how the precious spiritual Torah and its spiritual commandments all manifest themselves in physical actions with, with very precise physical details of where, when, how, and how much constitutes the correct performance of a commandment. That's the gift wrapping. However, what is paramount to understand and appreciate is that within each physically gift wrapped teaching of the Torah and commandment is the absolute infinite will and infinite wisdom of God. And that when the person studies Torah and performs a commandment, he or she is digesting absolute teacher paradigm, which will from the inside out transform the student into the teacher's paradigm. Thus, there is a total contraction and concealment of the teacher, the giver, and it exists for no other reason than the revelation of the teacher to the student, receiver, in a digestible and a transformative way. This contraction and concealment of the teacher is the dot of the giver, which exists solely so that the receiver can become a healthy and productive, affluent individual. However, whether the receiver will become a healthy, affluent individual or an unhealthy, loaded individual will now depend upon whether the receiver is willing to work and develop his own dot of the receiver or not. Now we'll move on to the recipient's dot. The dot of the recipient is the dot of humility. However, there needs to be some clarity as to what the dot of humility is and what it is not. Let us begin with what it is not. I will share with you a story that happened at my Shabbat dinner table quite some years ago. There was quite an affluent individual with his wife and kids at our table, and the topic of how he educates his kids came up. 
He explained to me that the kids do not know of their being wealthy, etc. I shared with him that I respectfully see it differently. If the children are being educated in a way that they are not affluent children, then how are they to ever develop into responsible, affluent adults? It was my opinion at the table that it is important that the children realize that they are affluent children and that with that they were chosen to be the caring and loving bankers of God for all of God's children and for all of God's universe. Of what good is it to the children themselves and to the universe if they are being brought up to live and to see things through the eyes of the middle class? Spiritual humility is not about denying God's gift to each and every one of us. Rather, it is to embrace the humility born of receiving by the grace of God. And with that dot of humility to rise up to the responsibilities to God and to fellow man that comes along with the gift. Now that we know what it's not, there are certain humilities which are not holy. The true humility is that of the gift we receive from the grace of God. That creates humility, and that humility creates within us to rise up to the responsibilities to God and to fellow man that comes along with the gift. Now let us turn to what the dot of humility is. Let us begin with a conversation that took place between Jacob and Esau once they made peace. Jacob had sent a huge amount of gifts to appease Esau, and now Esau was telling Jacob that he did not need Jacob's gifts and that Jacob should keep it for himself and his family. Esau said, I have a lot, and thus I don't need your gifts. Jacob implores of Esau to accept his gifts to Esau, assuring Esau that he isn't in need of that which he is giving away. I have everything, is how Jacob assured Esau. What secrets lie behind the personalities in the words they choose to express their wealth? Kabbalah and Hasidus explore the word that Jacob used. I have kol. Kol is Hebrew for everything. There is a verse in Chronicles that states, For kol, for all that is in the heavens and on the earth. Ki kol bashamayim uba'aretz. Now the Targum in Chronicles translates the word kol in this verse to mean unites. And that the verse is saying, that God unites all that there is in heaven and on earth. The Zohar explains this more precisely, explaining that the emanation that brings and connects everything of the giver, which is the six emotion emanations, and the receiver, the seventh emotion emanation, is the sixth emotion emanation called Yisod, foundation, in human language that is called commitment. Thus, the Zohar is telling us that the word kol is the emotion emanation of Yesod, which is the connection of the giver and the receiver. We have been through a lot of mysticism already in this lecture, so I'm not going to focus on explaining the emanations as much as I will explain the concept behind what the Zohar is saying. All, of all the enemies of the Jewish people, there exists a unique animosity toward the nation called Amalek, of which we are commanded never to forget how they were the first to attack us in the desert after we left Egypt. On a mystical level, we are speaking of a potential Amalek that lives within each and every one of us. Now the word Amalek can be derived from the etymology Malak, 
which means to disconnect the head from the body. In our exploration, the, it means to disconnect the physical from the spiritual. Spirituality is always represented in oneness, for spirituality is all about unity. Yes, in the spiritual realms there exists a far greater magnitude of abundance than there is in the physical, and yet each and every piece of abundance is part of one whole, of one everythingness. The individual piece of abundance includes itself within the greater oneness and is completely transparent to express only the completion of that oneness. The dot of humility is the eradication of Amalek, which Amalek is born from total chutzpah and audacity, seeing itself always as contrary to the greater whole and oneness of the universe. I shared once before this story and I will share it now again. There was a newly born young and proud wave soaring through the ocean when it suddenly saw the jagged rocks of the shoreline against which it will be smashed. An older wave, seeing the panic of the young wave, asked, What is the panic all about? The younger wave screamed, We're going to die! To which the older wave calmly responded, Well, son, that all depends if you see yourself as an individual wave or as a wholesome part of the ocean's waters. Esau, the forefather of Amalek, saw himself as a wave looking to be of his own, separated from the ocean's identity. With this, Esau, who now didn't have the dot of humility, Esau lost the everythingness of oneness. What Esau was left with just the separated particles of a complex physical paradigm. Therefore, Esau said, I have a lot. Jacob, on the other hand, lived with the, the dot of humility. And thus, whatever Jacob had was all of the everythingness of oneness. Thus, Jacob said, I have everything. Let us now see the practical difference of having a dot of humility or not. Earlier I explained the science of cause and effect with which God runs the world. The outcome of this is that if we in our lives do not manifest the dot of the recipient, then God does not manifest the dot of the giver. In turn, the outcome of our experience of wealth in our lives, without the dot of humility, is that our physical possessions, regardless of the amount that we have, all becomes a tsunami of complexity, ripping us in different directions, and slowly we fall prey to this disaccord and complexity, living in anxiety and insecurity. This is the curse of being loaded. The blessing of affluence, which is the product of having the dot of humility, is that regardless of how much we have in wealth, fame, and power, we are never swept away by the waves and always remain in the oneness of the ocean through all of its evolutions and cycles. In closing, what is left to understand is the letter Hey. All that we have thus far spoken about concerning having or not having the dot of humility was all about the difference between the letters Resh and Dalit. Resh doesn't have the dot and Dalit does have the dot. However, what about the letter He? The difference between the letter Dalit and the letter He is that the letter Dalit only has the dot of humility on its back, the top back corner, while the letter He also has the dot of humility in its front, the bottom left side. Jacob was a complete transparent chariot to the will of God, with no opaque will of his own. Jacob was the letter He, 
who carried the dot of humility not only in the back of his subconscious, but also throughout the entirety of his conscious. This is when the student has completely digested and transformed into an absolute transparency for the teacher's paradigm. We, however, are not capable of this level of conscious transparency. Our experience of the dot of humility is not one of absolute transparency for God's will with no opaqueness of influence of our own will. We are the letter Dalid. However, every day we humbly acknowledge Jacob's letter Hey, as we proclaim, Hear, O Israel. You know that Israel is the second name of Jacob. So when we say Shema Yisrael, we're talking about Jacob. Hear, O Israel, God is our God. God is one. Friends, modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. Here, at the Jewish mind, is where modernity meets Judaism.